I'm Leonard Lopate. Sergio Miller's latest book is the second of a two-volume history of America's involvement in Indochina from the end of World War II to the fall of Saigon in 1975. In the first book, The Good Faith, he covered the Japanese surrender in 1945 through the U.S. involvement in the French-Indochina War and the initial advisory missions that followed. He takes up the story from the first deployment of U.S. combat ground troops in March 1965 through to the fall of the South in April 1975 in his new book, No Wider War, A History of the Vietnam War, Volume 2, 1965-1975. It's published by Osprey Books and brings Sergio Miller to our show now. Welcome. Hello, Leonard. Hi. Welcome to our show. Oh, great. I'm, I'm glad I got through. I wasn't sure whether I'd got through correctly, but it seems I have. I'm glad. You were there. It's a pleasure to, to, to be on the show. Thank you. You're a former British Army Intelligence Corps officer who served in special forces in Northern Ireland, South America, and East Asia, served in the first Gulf War as an intelligence briefer to the UK Joint Commander. How did that lead you to writing about the wars in Indochina? Well, it was, um, it was Afghanistan that actually led me uh, to look at Vietnam. Um, I don't know if you remember when General Stanley McChrystal was sent uh, to Afghanistan. A journalist asked him, isn't this just another Vietnam? Mm. And he replied emphatically, no, it wasn't. And he was right to say so. But there's also some truth in the saying that history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And at the time, I was thinking about this because the, the, the British contingent was floundering in the South uh, west corner of Afghanistan. Uh, and at the time, I also I'd written an article for the British Army's House Journal on the French experience in the uh, War of Independence. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, I've made the argument, look, they tried search and destroy, they tried cordon operations, they tried clearance and so on and so forth, and, and they didn't succeed. And, and it got me thinking, well, why not, why not write another piece for, for the British Army's uh, journal, uh, but on Vietnam. And, and it wound up being two books. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, mean I, I remember, as a child, I remember the war because my father used to, to get Time magazine and Newsweek magazine. And I specifically remember the imagery. I mean, this was a war that was very strong on photography. And, and I have vivid memories, even though I was a, a British child. I remember the Tet Offensive. I remember those, those photographs. I remember though I didn't realize at the time, the linebacker raised the beat twos and so on. So I, I had a memory there, and I was interested in it, but I, but I only had a general knowledge. But now, the more I looked into it, the more I... Go on, sorry? No, continue. Yeah, the more I looked into it, the more I was... I was just drawn into it, because it's such a compelling story. I mean... Well, weren't you able to draw show, upon research that had been unavailable to previous writers of Vietnam histories? How did they become that become well, available to you? Uh, because the, 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 the most of the the classic histories, as it were, were written in the aftermath of of the war in the eighties. Some in reprints, which which has been good. But obviously, the longer you leave uh, a subject, a historical subject, the more documents are declassified, and the more advantage you have, as it were, as a writer. It, it's simple as that. That's, uh, 
that's why I had advantages in that sense. And someone writing today would have advantages on me because more material is being declassified with each year that passes. After the French military withdrawal from Indochina in 1954, the U.S. assumed financial and military support for the South Vietnamese state. Uh, Did uh, that begin with advisory missions? When did the actual U.S. military presence in Vietnam begin? I'm not even talking about fighters, but some uh, members of the military. Well, it started with the Truman Hmm. presidency. That early as a consequence of the Korean War mm-hmm. and the fact that the, the French essentially were, were bankrupt. They could not have fought their war in French Indochina without lavish American funding. And for that funding to work, clearly, there had to be American service personnel in country to, to, to furnish that, that aid. So that's how it started. The original team, I believe, was just seven strong which is astonishing when you think hmm. about it, you, to go from seven to eventually over half a million. The Viet Cong, uh, South Vietnamese fighters under the direction of North Vietnam, initiated a guerrilla war in the South. And North Vietnam had also invaded Laos in 1958 in support of insurgents, establishing the Ho Chi Minh Trail to supply and reinforce the Viet Cong. By 1963, the North Vietnamese had sent 40,000 soldiers to fight in the South. So, and the U.S. was still, was not really involved yet. It it wasn't in the sense that, um, we're now now talking about the Kennedy presidency. Um, Washington was still bound legally, was meant to be bound by the Geneva, 1954 Geneva Accords that placed the limit on the number of service personnel allowed in South Vietnam, and the, and the limit was 384. Hmm. But under, under Kennedy, that number covertly began to increase because he was keen on, on special operations. He was the, the, the person who was behind the green berries and so on and so forth. So that, that number was creeping up by the time uh, we reached 63. And you begin your book when Kennedy was president with America's increasingly heavy commitment to the war when two Marine battalions land, battalion landing teams came ashore on the beaches of Da Nang on March 8, 1965. And weren't they met with a reception party of local girls and floral wreaths? Yes, that was, that was a, a notorious incident, you could say, that the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the South Vietnamese decided that the, the Marines had to be met by a reception party. The Marines themselves, as you can imagine, were embarrassed by the whole affair, but but played along. So yes, that's true. That there were the, the local corps commander basically was responsible for organising this group of uh, of uh, girls to come along and, and place uh, flower garlands over the commander, Brigadier Karch. And, and some of the other Marines. Yes, that's true. But the goal of that mission was not to Americanize the war. When did that change? Well, it, it happened incrementally. And in a sense, it was always going to happen incrementally because the, the gradualists, as they're known, won the argument. They were, at the time, you have, to, you have to sort of take a step back and look at the 1950s and the fear of atomic war and the, the sense that it was... Um, it was, you know, there was a doomsday sort of atmosphere in, in the air, and that that couldn't 
there were others who argued against that and, and thought, well, we, you know, we can't annihilate each other. There must be another, another way. And that gave birth to the ideas of flexible response, limited war, which was a new phrase at the time. Counterinsurgency was also a new phrase at the time. Um, and the gradualists in the Johnson cabinet won the argument that we should go into Vietnam, but we shouldn't um, do it loudly. We, shouldn't, we certainly shouldn't uh, debate it in Congress. And in fact, he didn't have to because he had secured his Gulf of Tonkin resolution the year before following the, the controversial incident in, in the Gulf of Tonkin. Um, and so initially, it, the idea was let's protect what we already have in South Vietnam. And at the time, there were basically the three main air bases at, at Da Nang, at Tan Son Nut, and at Bien Hao. Uh, and there were other, various other installations, actually. There was almost 20,000 service personnel, one form or other, uh, already in Vietnam when that decision was taking, taken to land the two, send the two uh, BLTs to Da Nang. So l- let's back up a bit. First, you mentioned Kennedy. Yeah. He, he was president from... Uh, well, January 1961 through uh, November 1963, when he was assassinated, and then Johnson became president. So much of what we're talking about here is really during the Johnson presidency, at least initially, no? Yes, the escalation, as it's known, which started in March 1965, was Johnson's anguished decision. He He was very torn. He he wasn't sure at all that he wanted to go down that path. But for, for a number of factors, he, he was pushed down that path. And by July, according to his national security advisor, George Bundy, basically he had made the decision to support the military that was clamoring for more troops. Well, how much was this a Cold War era proxy war? North Vietnam was supported by the Soviet Union, China and other communist allies. South Vietnam was supported by the United States and other anti-communist allies. And, and, and to what sense was, was it a proxy war? Yes, I mean, it was a Cold War era war. So was it really a, a, a affected by the fact that we were going through the Cold War at the time? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was in, in a sense that it was, it was a war dominated by the domino theory, the famous domino theory, the, the sense which, which was there right from the late 40s. Uh, Eisenhower is the person who has, who's, who's credited with it because he was the person who said in 1954 who invoked the analogy of the dominoes. But actually it was there from the late 40s onwards, the sense that if we let one country go, then the rest will start falling like dominoes. And there was a belief that, that this was part of a, a great communist master plan. In fact, it wasn't. But, but um, at the time, there was the, the, you know, it, it was the atomic age. There was the uh, anti-communism. It was the McCarthyite era and so on and so forth. So, yeah, there was that fear that uh, a stand had to be made, just as a stand had been made in Korea. And at first, the United States saw it as... Uh, a situation in which we would send military advisors. There were uh, just under a thousand military advisors in 1959, and that grew uh, to uh, 23,000 in 1964, which is, I guess, uh, when when Johnson had just taken over as president. Despite the fact he was someone who was very reluctant. Uh, So in the end, uh, the the 23,000 in 1964 is right after Johnson became president. And That's then, right. He inherited that mm. from Kennedy. Yeah. 
So this is a story of America's increasingly heavy commitment to the war from the, machine, the, the Marines, who uh, I mentioned earlier, on the beaches of Da Nang in 1965, through the 1st Air mm. Cavalry Division in the Central Highlands, then the siege of Quezon, the Tet Offensive in 1968, and the gradual Vietnamization of the war and drawdown of American forces before the final loss of the South in 1975. Have we covered pretty much everything? <laughs> That, that, that basically, in, in one broad sweep, is the story. That's right. <laughs> Although you have, this is a huge book, so there's a lot of stuff here. <laughs> it is. It's, I mean, it, because it's, uh, it is a remarkable story. It, it has a Dickensian cast of characters over 30 years. You know, you have to tell the story for someone to understand why America ended up mm. in South Vietnam. You have to start with the end of the Second World War. Uh, and the Pacific Theater. You have to tell the story of the French and how essentially Truman was unwilling, and so was Eisenhower, unwilling to let the French be humiliated because France was seen as a country that had to be supported after it had been um, occupied during the Second World War. Um, And that drew America into a position where it was effectively not only funding the French war, but then once the French decided that they were going to quit, that someone had to step in and the, the natural partner was always going to be uh, the States, the United States. Was there a debate similar to the one we're seeing today about U.S. involvement in the Russian-Ukrainian war? Well, there, most, there most certainly was, yes. I mean, there were in, the, in the Truman and into the Eisenhower presidency, one of the sad ironies is that the Joint Chiefs at the time uh, were very much against uh, U.S. involvement in, in Vietnam, and they cautioned that it would take at least 12 divisions uh, to try and hold the country, which proved a remarkably accurate assessment, given that that was eventually the, at the high point. There were in the order of 12 divisions um, based in Vietnam, including the Marine divisions. Yes, there was. In the beginning, they were at the, at the Joint Chiefs level, there was reluctance to get involved. And Eisenhower was a very cautious and you could say canny person. And he was also reluctant to be, to be driven down the road of greater engagement. In fact, he was the person who said that he hadn't met anyone who didn't advise him that if there were free elections in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh would win. Hmm which then raised the question, then, then why are we trying to stop this outcome if this is what the, the Vietnamese as a whole want? Even if we thought that would be a bad dis- a situation. Yeah, because, we, because the, the period that everyone was living through was mm. um, you know, anti-communism. Uh, it was seen as, a, uh, as an evil. And uh, so it was, and especially after the Korean War, you have to put yourselves in the shoes of mm. contemporaries who just lived through the surprise attack um, America's humiliation at the beginning of the, uh, the Korean War before the situation was turned around. So for people in Washington, Korea was very much at the forefront. China was very much at the forefront because it had been the Chinese intervention in Korea that had, that had caused, uh, that had created the, the stalemate and the, uh, that exists to this day. So, yeah. My guest is Sergio Miller, 
whose latest book is No Wider War, A History of the Vietnam War, Volume 2, 1965 to 1975, published by Osprey. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. So we wound up uh, transporting uh, hundreds of thousands of American troops uh, into Vietnam to seek out the enemy. But wasn't the North Vietnamese Army, which was officially known as the People's Army of Vietnam, often quite elusive? Uh, the the U.S. soldiers who'd been trained for a conventional war, were, were, I suspect, were unprepared to fight an elusive enemy in a rugged, jungle-covered terrain in the marshes of the Mekong Delta. Well, they weren't elusive in the sense that uh, there were the, the terrain varied. Obviously, in, in South Vietnam was was from the, the delta in the south through to the, the the forests in the central belt to the central highlands, and then in the north again it was different where the Marines were. Well, the cover photo it, shows Marines in, walking through water with their weapons held high. Well, well, no, that, that was the. The Marines were up in the north oh. in one core tactical zone on the DMZ. In the south, in the delta, was where 9 Division, 9 Infantry Division was based. Mm-hmm. It's going through the paddy fields here. It, it would have been soldiers in the, in the delta. Okay. Well, I couldn't tell the difference. Uh, luckily, I didn't serve, even though I could have. Uh, <laughs> my eyesight was bad. Uh, uh, the Americans had helicopters and immense firepower resources. Didn't that give them an advantage? Could the uh, Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army have hoped to achieve a military victory? It did give them an advantage. And ultimately, uh, as Westmoreland said, uh, back in 64, when he was asked, you know, uh, can they win? And he, and he said, no, no, they can't win. And he was right, they couldn't win. There was no way, realistically, that the People's Army uh, could have defeated an American army or the Marines. Uh, and, and they didn't have the air power for a start. But they didn't have to. And at the end of the day, they, the, the task for the North was to wear down mm-hmm. American patience and tolerance of supporting what was a corrupt regime. There, was, there were huge frustrations leading up to escalation in 1965 and great debates whether Washington should continue with this uh, support of a, of a regime that just would not reform. So the, 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 the North strategy was more about let's wear them down rather than let's defeat them, which realistically they knew they could never do. General Westmoreland gave that speech that claimed the United States was clearly on the road to victory before a joint session of Congress in 1967. Uh, was that sense of optimism affected by the Tet Offensive of 1968? Well, I think if you're referring to the, the, uh, the we've reached the crossover point or the tipping point, I think that was the, the, um, the fall of the year before. Mm-hmm. When he gave that, when he gave that um, um, celebrated address to Congress, um, and at the time, to be fair to Westmoreland, he had a, he had a point. There was this was a period when the North and the, and the Viet Cong that were demoralised, the U.S. armies and the Marine Corps' big unit operations, as they were known, were beginning to reap some reward. 
Um, in many occasions, it was because of the North's mistakes, their attempts to take on uh, American units, which always ended in tactical disasters for them. So there was, uh, there was some, some merit in what he was saying, but nobody knew that the following year, the Tet Offensive, the, the North would go for broke in the way it did, and that furthermore, that offensive would have the great psychological impact. That was, that was the difference, the great psychological impact it had on American public opinion and on the person of Johnson himself, who, following the Tet Offensive, took that um, agonized decision that he would no longer seek the nomination for the, uh, for the forthcoming uh, election. Well, from a military perspective, wasn't the Tet Offensive a disaster for the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong? But was it a political victory for them? Because of what was being seen was, on the nightly because, news? That's exactly what happened. It was, a, it, was a, it was a complete disaster. The North, in a way, cynically, sacrificed the Viet Cong hmm. um, in, in what was in, and made them go for broke in something that they could not have possibly achieved. Uh, the and the fact, Viet Cong being before. South Vietnamese soldiers were fighting for the North. No, the, the Viet Cong... The, the, the brunt of the offensive in that first week, the, the Tet Offensive really only lasted one week. It was um, before it ran out of steam. The, the big exception to that is obviously what happened at Hue, the month-long battle in the city of Hue, and also Khaesan, which involved <clears throat> the soldiers from the north. But in the south, in around uh, Saigon and so on, that was the Viet Cong. And they were essentially sacrificed, and, and the, the casualties they took, and the decimation they suffered was such that they never played an, another important role in the rest of the war. It wasn't until 1975, um, as Saigon was falling, that Viet Cong units began to revive and join in. But by that stage, they had been bypassed, and, and Hanoi had no intention, really, of letting the National Liberation Front, which was the political wing of the Viet Cong, to be part of the victory. And in fact, they were persecuted. They uh, kind of uh, dismissed the Viet Cong. Uh, well, uh, the uh, Viet Cong didn't escape Hanoi's criticism. What had they done that uh, led Hanoi to criticize them? Or not done? Well, they, they came from a very different um, political culture, um, and they and they had very different beliefs. Uh, the, the 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 North, the communist uh, Indo Chinese Communist Party, was essentially uh, based on uh, rural northern um, Vietnamese society, whereas the the uh, the National Liberation Front, the NLF were South Vietnamese, educated, urban types, liberal, you could almost say, uh, certainly cultured, and they, they had a very different view of what they wanted the future of Vietnam to be. And it certainly didn't correspond with the hardline communist view that was being offered by the Politburo. Hmm. And so there was always an uneasy tension between the Viet Cong, the NLF, and Hanoi, but Hanoi could not win its war without the VC. The, the People's Army simply could not have done it on its own. It needed the VC to wear down the South. 
but 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 in the end, uh, they were sacrificed cynically, in my view. How relevant was the Ho Chi Minh Trail to the the war? It was huge. It was it was the it was one of the factors that made it so difficult for uh, uh, for the, uh, the the mission MACV, Military Assistance Command Vietnam, to succeed. Because as, as Nixon put it, we're not facing a forty mile border. We're facing a 640-mile border and a sanctuary, uh, so it made it it made it uh, you know terribly difficult. Basically, militarily, the problem was amplified enormously by the fact that the North, with impunity, until Nixon decided to to march into Cambodia and then later uh, the incursion into Laos, they were able to sustain their war with impunity uh, using the sanctuary of Laos and Cambodia. Now, we're talking about a time of where we had three different presidents, two Democrats and a Republican. Were, That's right. Is that reflected? Were their political parties reflected in their approaches to the war? Yes, they were. <laughs> and most notably during the Nixon presidency, because um, he had no friends, really. In domestic politics, he had no or few friends. And and there was a and there was a de- determination um, on the part of the on the Democrats, obviously, to get Nixon, which some, which uh, uh, which uh, someone like Henry Kissinger in his um, you know, White House years laments at length how uh, both he and Nixon felt rightly that uh, America could only leave South Vietnam as a deliberate act of policy. It could not leave it. In, in reckless or irresponsible flight, as he put it. But there were many in Congress that were determined to thwart Nixon at whatever cost, even if it meant that uh, America would be leaving in a humiliating way, which, which didn't happen. Uh, they were able, the Nixon-Kissinger uh, duo were able to negotiate a, an honorable withdrawal, if you could put it that way, uh, even though that the likelihood that South Vietnam would would uh, survive beyond was doubtful. Weren't 19 million gallons of herbicides like Agent Orange sprayed over South Vietnam? Uh, didn't the U.S. claim it wasn't engaging in chemical warfare? Well, uh, the, the, uh, the herbicides were, uh, do not fall under the uh, were not classified under the. Uh, as, as a chemical agent, hmm. so technically uh, they they weren't, and the, the issue of the herbicides is is a vexed one because there was great reluctance actually on the on Washington's part to use them. The encouragement came from the South Vietnamese government um, that that was really quite casual about uh, the use of and, and encouraged Washington to to the ranch hand missions as they were called. To, to engage in in, in the herbicide um, missions, the soldiers themselves liked it. They they thought it, it uh, served a useful purpose. But there is debate whether actually it it, it was that uh, worthwhile as as a military means of of um, denying the enemy cover. Well, that's what it was intended to do. But Agent Orange had a terrible effect on on humans, didn't it? Well, that, that's the debate, and that, that was one of the unfortunate consequences of using specifically. 
there were four agents they used. Agent Orange was the one that became notorious. Um, and especially with the veterans groups, uh, which became a very divisive issue in, in, the, in the States over whether they, in fact, had been poisoned. Eventually, uh, there was recognition, um, but it took many years before uh, it got to the stage where it was recognized that there were deleterious health effects from the ingestion of Agent Orange. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Got a letter from LBJ, it said this is your lucky day, it's time to put your khaki trousers on. Though it may seem very queer, we've got no job to give you here, so we are sending you to Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson told the nation, have no fear of escalation, I am trying everyone to please. Really war, we're sending 50,000 more to help save Vietnam from Vietnamese. I jumped off the old troop ship and if you're enjoying my conversation my with Sergio Miller. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, No Wider War A History of the Vietnam War. Volume 2, 1965-1975. To do that, just call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org during today's show. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. If you do that, we'll be happy to send you a copy, but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Sergio Miller to talk about his book, uh, which is published by Osprey. Um, now, um, the American view of the war depended on, on body counts as a key metric for success. But in the end, didn't the number of enemy dev, dead have little impact on the war's outcome? Yeah, it was the, the body count, notoriously, was one of those uh, false uh, self-eluding metrics that, that became prominent in the war. The idea that if we kill enough of them, we will win. But the reality was that no matter how many... Uh, BC or People's Army soldiers were killed, they could always send more down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. That was one mm. issue. The other issue, of course, was that units were incentivized to score high body counts, which resulted in, inevitably, people inflating the data. Just add a few noughts. Um, so you, you ended up with a situation where the units were exaggerating their success and the metric itself was self-deluding in the sense that America couldn't kill itself out of the, uh, the Vietnam War any more than it could do. For example, in Afghanistan, that was said often in Afghanistan, we can't kill ourselves out of this war. And it was true in, in, in Vietnam as it was in Afghanistan. But didn't the body counts of American soldiers have an impact on American public policy and the national and political will to continue the fighting? Yes, that was the other salient point, and, and that is for, for an American family, 
Maxi claiming we kill a thousand every week really was not as relevant as the telegram they received that morning telling them that their son had been killed. It really didn't, you know, it didn't resonate with, them, with uh, an ordinary American family. What McVie was or was not achieving, what mattered to that family was, was what was happening to American boys. You're right, yes. And didn't North Vietnamese troops search the battlefields for wounded Americans that they could kill to elevate the numbers of dead that would be reported to the American public? I don't know if they did it specifically for that, but it is true that uh, American wounded were executed. That is true, yes. And then uh, didn't the U.S. military have to deal with serious drug addiction problems during the, the last few years of the war? They did, yeah. I mean, armies reflect the societies they come from. They, they can't help but reflect the societies they come from. And in the case of the U.S. Army in, in Vietnam, there was this, uh, a, a collapse in morale. Um, Creighton Abrams put it well when he said, is this, is this an army or a madhouse? Hmm. There, there was uh, this, uh, a collapse in morale, and part of it was the, the drug-taking that became um, rife, really, uh, the soft drugs, as we would say today, like marijuana, but also some hard drugs because they were so cheap. Uh, and it's been argued that uh, it took years for the U.S. military to recover from discipline and morale issues uh, that had come up in the war's final years. Well, I think one of, the, one of the untold stories of Vietnam, and I didn't have space to tell that story, is the way... Despite all these pages? Uh, you, this book is how many pages? <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it's uh, post, post 523 really... pages. Yeah, no. We had pictures on top of it. Yeah, the good story is the that is the manner in which the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps transformed themselves uh, post the war. I mean, the 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 U.S. Army of today and the U.S. Marine Corps uh, are completely different entities to that army with respect to the people that served in Vietnam to to that army. And to give an example, in Afghanistan, I can only think of one example where uh, civilians were killed in, in, in what we would say is, is a war crime. And that was the incident where a sergeant appeared to lose his mind, basically, and stepped out of a patrol base and killed, from memory, he killed around a dozen Afghans, a family, basically. But that was the single incident that I can remember from all those years in Afghanistan. Now, there were hundreds of dubious incidents in the Vietnam War of that type. Civilians uh, so there dying. A, there was a, sorry? Civilians being killed. That's right, yeah. So, I mean, there was a, a, a huge transformation in, in both uh, the, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps post the war, which, which should be celebrated and recognized. We're talking about completely different um, armies that, that picked themselves up, as it were, by the bootstraps and said, you know, never again, we're not going down that path. Your closing chapter recounts the sudden collapse of South Vietnamese resistance and the end of this very long war. Uh, and as predicted, the South Vietnamese people then entered into a very difficult period under the North Vietnamese. Uh, uh, and as we mentioned earlier, even some many former Viet Cong didn't escape uh, Hanoi's wrath. So... 
why was why did uh, North Vietnam deal with the, with South the South Vietnamese so harshly? They'd won. Well, there was a sense of there was a sense of vengeance um, was was one reason, uh, and another reason was this: there was almost a, um, a bafflement on the part of the Northerners once they arrived in the South. Uh, they, 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 were all, they realized they weren't really liberating. The, the, the propaganda was you're, you're liberating the, you know, your fellow Vietnamese from the, the corrupt regime of the South and from those evil Americans. But when they arrived in the South, what they found wasn't that at all. It was, it was people that were almost foreign to them with their attitudes, their culture, their values, and so on. So there was, a, there was that, that sort of communist impulse to re-indoctrinate a people's which, which unfortunately uh, meant prison camps, internment, and so on and so forth. And there was, there was as you say, there was a period where the, the South lived in, in uh, went through a miserable period before, this, before people began to calm down and, and the situation began to develop more normally, as it were. Well, hadn't the, the South Vietnamese government been a bit corrupt? It was, yes. I mean, it was, it was one of the reasons why... America's war in South Vietnam was probably foredoomed. Was from the beginning, from the uh, from the, the presidency of No Dinh Diem, uh, corruption was a huge problem in, in South Vietnam. And every effort, there were multiple programs on the part of Washington to try to reform the government to address the the corruption. They all founded. Um, uh, so, so uh, you know, America was faced with the same problem that happened in, in Afghanistan, that billions were being poured down black holes of corruption. And, and, uh, uh, and it was difficult to keep the hooch up, propped up um, with, with your own troops. I've counted uh, in, in your book about 70 different names of, of military operations. Why so many? How did Operation Paul Revere or Operation Pershing different from Operation Rolling Thunder? And where did they get those names? Well, uh, the reason why I, I, I put them in is because in the past, the reason why I, I went into some detail of those military operations is because, um, first of all, I'm, I'm from a military background, and I find, these, I find them interesting. All the primary source material is available, the after-action reports, there's a lot of material uh, in veterans' websites, the UNIP blogs, first-hand accounts of soldiers who were there and describe what happened and so on and so forth. And I think that's a missing part of, of Vietnam history is that um, people tend to skip over certainly 1966 and 1967. They, they sort of think, well, those were boring years. What was happening then? Let's just, let's just jump forward to the Tet Offensive of... 1968. Let's jump forward to the big battles like Hamburger Hill or Dacto and so on and so forth. And let's ignore, you know, let's skip over 66 and 67. But actually, those were the years where the MACB vision, mission was bedding itself down and was setting the foundations for what would follow. And if you want to understand the Vietnam War, you really, you really need to understand that sequence of operations that were, that were unfolding through those two years as, as Westmoreland tried to, uh, to, to enact his strategy. Well, how significant were the names? Didn't President Johnson change the name of Operation Masher to Operation White Wing? 
I don't yes, get did, the yes. difference. Yeah, that, that, that was one example where he felt that it was too uh, violent, uh, aggressive a name. Masher. He changed the name. Yeah. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Sergio Miller, whose latest book is No Wider War, A History of the Vietnam War, Volume 2, 1965 to 1975, published by Osprey, has lots of pictures as well, fascinating stuff. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. The war lasted uh, almost... 20 years with direct U.S. involvement ending in 1973. It also spilled over into neighboring states, affecting the Laotian Civil War and the Cambodian Civil War. So, And when the fighting ended, all three of those countries had become communist states by 1975. They had, yes. So, so Laos, Laos, not so much. It's, it's not so true. Laos mm-hmm. really was a neutral country and always remained so. But it's true that in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge uh, took over. That's right. And so it, this had spilled over into the neighboring states. Might that not have happened if we hadn't had this long, complicated war in Vietnam? Well, it, it wouldn't have happened if... <clears throat> If the North had not um, Hmm. abused both Laos and Cambodia uh, by using those two countries, weak countries, as their sanctuaries, Um, Kissinger uh, and Nixon both were heavily criticized for the Cambodia operations and Laotian operations. But as Kissinger pointed out, why was it legitimate for Hanoi to base its soldiers in those two countries and to conduct operations that were resulting in the deaths of U.S. soldiers and Marines, but illegitimate for the United States to then march into those countries and to do something about it. So it, it was, but the, the, the culpability, as it were, lies with Hanoi, not with, um, as, as some have, a, have sometimes sought to portray it, as the fault of Kissinger or the fault of... Um, of Nixon. Well, I suspect that if I were to just to go out in the street and take a poll of people uh, who were around at the time, the great majority would say that the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War was a big mistake. But you point out that North Vietnam was played a terrible role in this whole story. So what should the United States have done? Well, it depends when you ask the question, <laughs> in which presidency. But, well, it didn't, it didn't turn out well for the United States anyway, despite the fact that it, some it people might have argued that no, we were fighting the good fight there. You're, I mean, and you're right. There was the, the window of opportunity. The, during the Truman and Eisenhower presidencies, the, 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 the American commitment was limited to training, and it was modest uh, and, and there was no great liability there. It began to grow under Kennedy. But, but Kennedy was doubtful about the whole business, and so was McNamara, who's also got this un, un, unjustified warmonger in the popular perception um, label. Because by the end of the... Before Kennedy was assassinated, McNamara and Kennedy had come to the, to the, to, to the conclusion that 
it was time to start drawing down the troops. And McNamara put in place what was going to be a three-year withdrawal plan, um, the year that Kennedy, in fact, was assassinated. There was, a, there was resistance on the part of the Joint Chiefs, and they successfully managed to, to, um, to delay his, his timelines a bit and also to slow down that withdrawal. But essentially, by the time we get to that last year of Kennedy's presidency, the feeling in Washington was, we've done what we can, let's start drawing down the troops and, and go back to a minimal mission. And then so Johnson the changed, the Johnson didn't there. agree? Sorry? But Johnson didn't agree, at least initially? It, well, it wasn't so much that he didn't agree. He, he also wanted to get out. The problem was that by the time Johnson assumed the presidency, the intelligence had become, uh, on the situation in, in South Vietnam, had become almost, you could say, semi-hysterical. The, the idea, uh, the, the prevailing orthodoxy through the winter of 64, 65, into January, February, and then into March, was that it was just a matter of months before South Vietnam would collapse. And this was the period when there was the attack on, on the, the U.S. air base at Xinhua, which resulted in 30-odd aircraft being destroyed. There was the Brink BOQ uh, terrorist attack uh, in Saigon. There was then the attack at, on Camp Holloway in Pleiku, just when uh, William Bundy was in country. Uh, so there were, there were a series of high-profile incidents that were grabbing the headlines and adding to this general atmosphere that it's now just months before, South, before Saigon collapses. So what do we do? Are we, do we pull out or do we, or do we get in? That was the, the well, dilemma that um, Johnson was faced with. Well, over the, the course of the war, U.S. casualties point, amounted to 58,000 dead and 300,000 wounded. So uh, yes. a, it was a war of attrition as well. You write about the convoluted four-year-long peace negotiations in Paris. Did the 1972 Christmas bombing of Hanoi take place during those negotiations? They did. They, they took place when the, the negotiations stalled. Uh, effectively, the, at the end of 1972, it got to the point where Kissinger uh, believed he was almost there. Peace, peace is at hand. The famous uh, uh, address uh, he gave, which then backfired on him because uh, Saigon wouldn't sign. Hmm. Um, and then there was a, a meeting... Uh, between Al Haig, Kissinger, and Nixon, in which they decided we're, we're going to bomb the North, the, the famous linebacker two raids, forced them back to the negotiating table. The irony was that Hanoi did want to sign. Uh, the people that were holding up the, the, the signing of the peace agreement, if it could be called that, was Saigon, because Saigon feared, sensed that effectively it was signing it, its own death knell. Did the Paris Peace Treaty allow the United States to extricate itself from the war with any sense of dignity? Yes, I think it did. I, uh, Kissinger is someone who has who's been vilified over the years. Huh. I think it's, it's unfair. Well, I've had Eddie, uh, a mixed experience with Henry Kissinger. I've interviewed him twice, and it wasn't all okay. that pleasant. But that's a whole other matter. He and, and Creighton Abrams played important roles in ending the war. Well, Creighton Abrams, as, as all military people, um, tried to resist 
the redeployment, that was, as it was called, in other words, the withdrawal from Vietnam, and to slow it down um, against uh, Kissinger's and oh. Nixon's wishes. But, uh, but Craig Nabrams was, was clearly an important uh, person mm. in the story in the, in the sense that he took over from Westmoreland and he, he husbanded what remained of McPhee uh, as it began to draw down before handing over to Weyand. Uh, but the key person clearly in, in the whole business was Kissinger and his peace negotiations with Le Duc in in Paris. In the end, three million people died as a result of this war that lasted 20 years from 1955 to 1975, the, uh, the, era, the, the years covered by the two books you've written about this. That's a lot of people. It was. I mean, uh, the, it's a tragedy first for, for, the, for the Vietnamese, clearly. The, the Vietnamese, we, we tend to focus, certainly if you're a Westerner like myself writing, You'll, you'll tend to focus on the American narrative. And uh, not only that, yeah, you do so anyway, because the, the sources and the language send you in that direction. But we should recognize, you're right, that first and foremost, uh, the years from the, from, the, uh, from the first, the Inter-Chinese War, the first Inter-Chinese War with the French through to the Vietnam Wars, as it's known, that, that it was a monumental tragedy for the Vietnamese people an unnecessary, an epic tragedy, because ultimately the unification of the country was something that was going to happen one day. But, but it, was, it was effectively thwarted for a period of 30 years in the most violent way. Well, the last American servicemen left Vietnam in May 1973, but the war didn't finally end until the fall of Saigon in April, on April 30th, 1975. So it continued, and right now Vietnam is not is is considered a, 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 a what word do we want to use criminal state in some ways? An Asian ways? tiger. It's what? An Asian tiger. Uh-huh. So is it's it, one of the tiger economies? You mean it's become a pot? It, it, it's it's recovered in many ways. It's, it's a remarkable transformation. Mm. The, the country, the way it's, it's transformed is, is, is really quite remarkable. It's one of the, the sad aspects, in a way, of, of the, you know, if you go to somewhere like Da Nang, where the Marines landed and where there, there were those tragic scenes of people trying to flee in 75 to jump on boats. Now, today, it's just this long line of, you know, expensive beach resort hotels and, and consumer capitalism. So... You're left scratching your head and wondering, well, what was all that about? You know, what were we fighting for? Sergio Miller is a former British Army Intelligence Corps officer who served in special forces. He was deployed to Northern Ireland, undertook assignments in South America and East Asia. And in the first Gulf War, he served as an intelligence briefer to the United Kingdom Joint Commander. And he has written a two-part series on the history of the Vietnam War. We've been discussing the second called No Wider War, A History of the Vietnam War, Volume 2, 1965 to 1975. It is published by Osprey. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. 
Well, thank you, Leonard. It was, uh, it, it, I have to say, it's the first time I've been asked on a, a radio talk show, so I was clearly, I was, go, I was going to be nervous, and especially as, as for some reason there, there appeared to be a technical hitch at the beginning, but, but that was, uh, we got round that. So, but it's been a pleasure for me too, and I hope it was uh, interesting for your listeners. Oh, I hope so too. Well, it was fascinating for me because uh, there were all sorts of things I learned from your book that. <laughs> came as complete surprises to me. I, I had my own sense of the war based on just having lived through it here in New York. But thank you again. And that brings us... All right, the, thank you. It brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. You can also check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to uh, alert you to a very serious problem that's facing this station. WBAI finds itself two months behind in paying the fee that we have to pay to have our signal transmitted from the broadcast tower at four times square. Uh, the rent there comes to $17,000 a month, and we're asking our listeners to consider stepping up and supporting us financially as we struggle to stay afloat and on the air during these difficult times. If you haven't done it already, please make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to help give keep this unique in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's 212-209-2950 or Give and then the number to WBAI.org. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Lodge right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, No Wider War, a History of the Vietnam War, Volume 2, 1965-1975 by Sergio Miller. So make that call now, please. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thank you if you do that. Uh, at $10 a month or more with a WBAI tote bag. Either way, uh, we hope that you'll call right now because WBAI is 100% listener-sponsored. We don't take um, foundation grants or ads or anything like that. Um, And I hope you can join us tomorrow. We'll see you then.